Someday, you folks will hear a child of Lavinia's calling its father's name from the top of Sentinel Hill. And then you'll know. Here's a Japanese sandman sneaking on with a tune. Just an old second Hello and welcome to Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dawood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're journeying once more into the Dunwich Horror, and this is the final part, and there will be no return. But wait! Look at the episode number. Where are we? It's a big round 150. It It sure is. How long have we been doing this? We've been doing this for... Five and a half years now, or more than five and a half years. I was going to say 150 episodes, but yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah, this has gone on a long time. And you've been keeping regular all these years, Scott. And and releasing the occasional episode, too. Yes, once every fortnight. Yes. Marvellous. And those of you who have seen the cover of Issue 4 of the Blasphemous Tome, if you don't have a copy of the tome, take a look on the website, we've posted it up there, will have seen that Evan Dorkin did a wonderful cover for us that featured a creature that he refers to as Padthulu, a sort of Lovecraftian version of Paddington Bear, just with added tentacles. Yeah, instead of, please look after this bear, it's, please look after this thing. And... This proved so inspirational that one of our listeners, David Kirkby, who is a sculptor of great talent, has brought it to hideous life. What do you mean hideous? I thought it was really cute. (laughs) Well, yes, that too. And David has kindly given us this item so that we can auction it for charity. And we're going to be setting up an eBay auction starting when episode 151 goes out on the 5th of March... And it will be an eBay auction in aid of cancer research. We'll post some photographs and maybe even a video if we can work out how that works. If we can work out how video works? Yes. Yes. We'll post those so you can take a look at exactly what Padthulu is. We're hoping that this will inspire some generous person to pay quite a lot of money for it because it's worth it. It really is a thing of beauty. It is. Now, some of you may have heard of Google+. Plus. Well, if you haven't heard, don't worry, because it's going away in April. But for those of you that do have a presence there, like we do with our forum for the good friends of Jackson Elias, well, Scott, we've been looking for new homes for our community, am I right? Yeah, we've looked at a few different platforms. I mean, for a while it looked like MeWe might be an option, but it doesn't really seem to have seen much in the way of uptake. And, I mean, that makes me wonder how long it's going to be around for. So instead, uh, we're going to try setting up a subreddit. So for people who don't know what that term means, one of the biggest websites on the internet is Reddit, which is a a news aggregator come social media site come time sync. Yeah. And people basically go there to share links and to talk about said links. And so it reproduces a lot of the functionality that we use Google Plus for. And what you can do is you can set up individual communities, which you can choose to visit instead of the larger Reddit or add to your overall feed. So we'll set up one called Good Friends of JE, which should be live by the time this goes out. We'll put a link in the show notes. So if you're already a Reddit user, please come and join us there. If you're not already a Reddit user, you can create an account. You don't need an account to browse it. We hope to see you there. Now, if you are a regular user of our Google Plus community, you may have posted stuff on there that you want to keep. With the platform going away at the end of April, 
obviously all that stuff is going away. But Google have provided a tool called, I think it's Google Takeout. We'll link to it from the, the show notes. And you can export all your contents. You can export the entire contents of a community. You can export your own posts and stuff like that. And keep them for all time as HTML files and, and all the media content. Can you download it on a cassette tape? I have every faith that you can, Paul. Good, I good. mean, not everyone. I mean, you. Yeah. Okay. I'll channel that. Now... As it's episode 150, we wanted to uh, announce something new. Now, we've already mentioned the Blasphemous Tome, which is our fanzine that we put together every year. And it's a hard copy, old school paper fanzine that we send to all our Patreon backers. And we'll be doing another one of those at the end of 2019. But this year, we're going to do something new. We have quite a lot of content from the previous issue that we didn't include because of limits of space and we got new stuff that we're working on. So there's going to be an issue 4B or four and a half or whatever you want to call it. Not 2B. We're way past that. Yes, luckily we're not 2B. And this is going to come out June time? Yeah, we're going to try to put it out halfway between the, the print tome. So yes, that would be around June. And this will be PDF. Yes, we're embracing the new technology. We're moving on from the 1980s paper copies to intangible PDF stuff. Shitification is long behind us. <laughs> Indeed. But if, if you do miss the paper, you can always print it out. You can. Mm. So it will be coming out to all our Patreon backers. We'll get a copy of the PDF. So if you're a Patreon backer by then, you will get a copy and more news to follow. And now let's wrap up our look at the Dunwich Horror. So we left Dr Armitage and his trusty two investigator companions heading up the hill to confront the monstrous Dunwich Horror. Leading his makeshift party of farmers and academics. Well, that's a great combination. Armitage tracks the creature's path from the remains of the Bishop Farm. Using a telescope he happened to have in his pocket, Armitage spots vegetation being trampled by the invisible monstrosity as it mounts Sentinel Hill. Armitage leaves his trusty telescope in the hands of an undecayed Waitley by the name of Curtis. This allows Curtis to keep an eye on the academics from a distance as they chase the horror up Sentinel Hill. From this point onward, Curtis becomes our commentator, allowing us to experience the excitement at a safe degree of remove. Because, after all, you know, this being a Lovecraft story, we can't have an action scene. If there is excitement to be had, we'd better be protected from actually witnessing it firsthand. <laughs> This could be the way he edited down this massive amount of text that we discussed last episode. <laughs> he gives us the cliff note version from afar. Well, in this case, the Curtis note version from afar. Spry for a 73-year-old, Armitage runs up the hill, leading the charge. He takes the sprayer from Rice and blows a cloud of magical powder over the creature, making it visible for a moment. This sight provokes deep distress in Curtis, who cries out and drops the telescope in the mud. Another local, Henry Wheeler, grabs the instrument, looks through it, and passes his sand roll, allowing him to describe what he sees. Now, it should be told that Poor Curtis, we just mentioned that he fails his sand roll. Yeah, he is like a gibbering wreck. Oh, yeah. He's, he's totally disabled by this. And he's just looking at it through an old telescope. This is an interesting thing because in Call of Cthulhu, we've come to accept the idea that seeing a monster costs sand. Just the sight of one of these eldritch monstrosities is enough to drive a man mad. 
But in Lovecraft, that doesn't actually tend to happen that often. I mean, maybe at the end of Haunter of the Dark, I mean, mm. in, Dagon, in, in well. Dagon, yeah. Mm-hmm. But there are plenty of people who see these horrors and are completely unaffected or perhaps uh, process them in, in more intellectual ways. But this is the kind of visceral sand loss that typifies Call of Cthulhu. And I'd kind of forgotten until rereading the story that this kind of thing actually really did happen in Lovecraft. And Matt, perhaps you could let us know what Curtis had to say. Bigger in a barn, all made of squirming ropes. Whole thing also shaped like a hen egg or bigger than anything, with dozens of legs like hogs' heads that had to shout when they when they step. Nothing solid about it. An old jelly and made all seven wriggling ropes pushed closer together. Great bulging eyes all over. Ten, twenty mouths or trunks are sticking out all on the sides. Bigger stovepipes and all are tossing an old man and a shutting. All grey with kind of blue or purple things. And gold in heaven, that half face on top. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> I, I think, as well as being a fantastic comedy accent, <laughs> that particular delivery, Matt, has got the benefit that you, you don't actually have to read the text right because no one can understand a fucking thing you're saying. <laughs> oh, I nearly died. <laughs> I feel like Curtis. <laughs> Roll 1d20. <laughs> oh. I'm pretty sure that's what Lovecraft had in mind when he wrote that passage. Um... Trust me, it's, it's all the reverence that his dialect warrants. <laughs> Off in the distance, the academics appear to conduct some kind of ritual, and the observers can just about make out their rhythmic chanting drifting across the air. Both the hills and the sky rumble as clouds gather. Dogs and neighbouring farms bark an alarm. I mean, one thing Lovecraft does do pretty well here is build up this feeling that something momentous is about to happen. Lightning flashes around the altar stone atop the hill. Sadly, none of the locals were watching through the telescope, so we are offered little visual description. The sound, however, is memorable as a deep, cracked, inhuman voice cries out. It is almost erroneous to call them sounds at all, since so much of their ghastly, infra-based timbre spoke to dim seats of consciousness and terror far subtler than the ear. Yet one must do so, since their form was indisputably, though vaguely, that of half-articulate words. Now, yes, we have reference here to, to the sunshine lessening, but they look around and there's no clouds in the sky. There's, there's lightning flashes, uh, again, there's no storm, and the sky goes purplish. And as the uh, esteemed academic once stated, you got me blowing, blowing my mind. Is it tomorrow or just the end of time as the purple haze falls upon them? <laughs> Quote <Otis> the Hendrix. <laughs> yes, indeed. I think it's basically what he was describing in, his, in, in the purple haze. And this, this reading also made me think that I want to see a Lovecraftian furniture store just so they can sell dim seats of consciousness. Most of the words the listeners hear are alien, but enough are intelligible to convey a little meaning. And what are these words, Matt? They are... <laughs> this is probably less, less West Country this time. 
I was over the West Country last time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think that accent you gave last time had, had even seen a hint of cider or, or uh, clotted cream. West of some direction, anyway. But it was indescribable, Scott. That's, that's yes. what Lovecraft would have wanted. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, west of intelligibility, mm. maybe. Uh, th- in which case, it's east of inten- intelligibility now. <laughs> Also, it seems a, a most appropriate time to uh, point out that some people have paralleled this with Jesus on the cross yes. calling out to his father. Yeah, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Or Indeed. Okay. Somehow I don't quite get that you would have said it like Matt. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Papa, can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't remember anyone being crucified in Yentl. Well, I know, but rising can have that effect on people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you say some people, I mean, particularly Robert M. Price uh, did, you know, made that comparison. And there are not to accept that. I mean, it's an interesting parallel because it almost makes this into a much larger biblical parallel that... What the other Waitley twin is doing here is almost bring about the apocalypse, you know, which is you know very much what Jesus is supposed to be doing when he returns, sweeping the world away and and remaking it. And one could argue we may have had a virgin birth. Yeah, it wasn't so, really the Holy Spirit, but you know. No, I mean I I don't think these parallels are accidental. How successful you think they are is a whole different story. But I think this was very conscious on Lovecraft's part. This was his sort of blasphemous Christian allegory. Do you think that the other Waitley twin, this invisible monster that's running around, actually really does present any kind of existential threat to the world here? Because, I mean, we had Wilbur who was going off and reading the Necronomicon and learning the secret rituals and the ways to open the way between worlds and bring back Yogg-Sothoth and all that good stuff. He mentions in his ledger earlier, his brother is perhaps a bit more advanced than him. But does his brother know all these things? I mean, Wilbur failed in his researches. The brother hasn't tried doing any of these researches. Is what's going on here the academics saving the world from apocalypse? Or is it just three men running around trying to stop a big invisible monster? I'm going to go with the latter, because I think the dog saved the world. The dog that killed Wilbur. Yeah, I haven't really thought about that, Scott, but that does make sense because Wilbur was quite a learned person and was going on about all those chants and angles and things that he had to learn. And his brother seemed to be almost another thing in his toolbox that he was going to use to bring about the return of the old ones and so on, almost, to me. He does mention that, you know, him upstairs or it upstairs or whatever was more advanced than him. Right, yeah. I thought the line from there, because I remember it reappears in the um, the film version for the Dunwich Horror from the 70s, was that only them from beyond can make it multiply and work, and the it that they're referring to is the brother. So he would be a component in the ritual that then would be multiplied and used almost the way I'd say it, replicants of him to do the wiping off and clearing off of Earth. Maybe. Another possible reading is that because his brother was more like their father, that he had innate abilities and was able to do things that Wilbur was having to learn how to do. But in which case that opens up the question, why the hell was Wilbur doing it anyway if his brother could do all this stuff innately anyway? And also, why is his brother, this massive 
invisible monster the size of a house just going around killing police officers and mm. you know randomly Attracting attention. doing stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it doesn't seem to have any great aim. Doesn't, yeah, doesn't know it, better, hasn't been fed cows for the last few days. Yeah, hasn't been fed for a month. But yeah, I mean, if he'd just you know, munched on a cow or two and charged straight up Sentinel Hill, that would have been game over. So if he'd done more cattle mutilation, is what yeah. you're saying? Right. I mean, that, that's the answer to everything, Paul. Indeed. Finally, the lightning strikes the top to cataclysmic effect. Plants are flattened by the shockwave. Dogs howl in terror for miles around. The plants of the hill wither and die. And, most weirdly, every whippoorwill in the area drops dead. Oh, poor birdies. Oh, I don't know. They've been going around eating everyone's souls. They fucking deserve it. They're cute birdies. And they keep missing the souls, though, don't they? Well, yeah, they, they've missed a couple, but obviously they managed to get some. But also we get this reference here to plants being kind of a greyish green colour or greyish blue colour, a bit like in the colour out of space. Mm. It seems this blight that touches the land. I mean, does it not affect the onlookers as well? It seems like a burst from the thing that blights the land. And then it sort of says that it doesn't come right for decades, I guess. Yeah, this almost goes back to what we were talking about in or a very old episode, The Mythos is Corruption. The idea that... You know, these entities from beyond are so antithetical to life and the way our world works that their very presence taints the world. Their dreadful task complete, the academics rejoin the distant observers. Armitage assures them that there is nothing more to worry about. The thing has gone forever, Armitage said. It has been split up into what it was originally made of and can never exist again. It was an impossibility in a normal world. Only the least fraction was really matter in any sense we know. It was like its father, and most of it has gone back to him in some vague realm or dimension outside our material universe. Curtis Whateley, still in shock, relays the detail that alarmed him most of all. The creature may have looked like an octopus centipede spider kind of thing, but there was a half-shaped man's face on top of it, and it looked like Wizard Waitley's, only it was yards and yards across. And again, we're going back to the idea that, as alien as these entities from the mythos are, we can only really understand them in terms of analogues to things that we see in our world. This is almost like a chimera of all sorts of natural things. Uh, now, whether that's just simply because Curtis has got no other way of explaining it, or, or whether it is some kind of amalgamation of forms that it is perhaps taken from our reality, yeah, I, I don't know. When it says it looks like Wizard Waitley, that implied to me more of a family resemblance rather than sudden. Why does it have its not father's face on top of it? What are you going back to the idea of whether this was a product of incest? More so that it just bears resemblance through the mother. I try to rationalise it. Why would it have Wizard Waitley's face when he wasn't the father? Mm. The only way is we see through the human part being through the mother that maybe it's just he bears a family resemblance through her. But it still seems a little weird that then how does she potentially pass that on? It has to be maybe fun for all the family somewhere up the line, but further back. Mm. And why doesn't it, for example, look like her? Yeah. Mm -hmm. However, Armitage offers an explanation. Wizard Waitley had told the truth when he said a child of Lavinia's would call his father's name from atop Sentinel Hill. This creature was Wilbur's twin brother, and as alien as Wilbur may have appeared, it looked more like the father than he did. 
I mean, that's interesting because the conception that we have in Call of Cthulhu of what Yogg-Sothoth looks like is very much taken from Durlis' description of, of him looking like a bunch of spheres. And there is nothing of that in this description here. This is something altogether more viscerally nasty and you know, something I can imagine being quite sanity-blasting to look at. One problem I've had perhaps sometimes with the presentation of Yogg-Sothoth and Call of Cthulhu is that that Derlithian bunch of spheres is going to look weird, particularly if they start moving in and out of each other in ways that the third dimension doesn't necessarily support. But is that really going to look so terrifying that someone's going to look upon it and go insane? But what did you two make of this ending, rather than just the actual ending itself, but the, the whole way the climax was handled? Bit of a cop-out. I wanted to see all the action up close and personal. Yeah, what you mean, the way that we observe it through the eyes of Curtis and his companions who are looking at it through a, a mud-smeared telescope and they're looking at distant figures up a hill. Yeah. Um, this is a weird way to narrate some things. It's almost like he wanted to save special effects budget and do it from a distance if it was a film. But it's quite, at the same time, we're seeing it through the eyes of those people and we're experiencing what they experience as observers. You know, I don't have any complaints about it. Well, I seem to remember, I think it was Chris Lackey who was saying on HP Podcraft that he thought it was quite effective the way this was done because if we'd been there in the midst of the action and seeing it all, that it might have come across as a bit crass or might have been difficult to describe in any way that was atmospheric or scary. Mm. I think there's been a similar point. I think Joe Pulver's said a couple of times on a different issue, it's about the King in Yellow, that it's almost impossible to write a version of the play. I mean, people have tried. Yeah. But it's one of those unattainable things. You can't do it in yes. prose. Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely true, that with the example of the King in Yellow, any attempt to write the play, I think, is a fool's errand because, you know, the whole point of that is that it's supposed to be filled with such poisonous truths that just destroys the human mind. And no one is going to be able to write that play. Well, Dan Brown, maybe? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> Text that would drive Scott insane. <laughs> Having read the last 50 pages of The Lost Symbol, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're looking at this from a gaming perspective, would that ever be something that we'd do in a game? Because it may work, I mean, I think it's debatable whether it works, but it may work in the story there. But having that degree of remove from the action, I think if that happened in a game, I'd feel completely shortchanged. Yeah, I would too. It would be great. I've worked my way all up to this confrontation. This is going to be fun, even if my dice are going to shaft me, but I don't get the chance. I'll just sit and have the, the keeper narrate everything to me. I actually have played in a few games like that. I mean, played in a game years ago. It wasn't Call of Cthulhu. Admittedly, the GM was a bit pressed for time, but it was a game that had a big set-piece ending and she wanted to make sure that she got it all in there. And so for the last 15 minutes of the game, the three players just basically sat there and listened as she narrated everything that was happening around us and we just couldn't interact with it at all. Vice standards, the RPG. Pretty much. <laughs> Well, that's the reason people don't do it, right? I mean, generally, people don't do it. Because you're playing a role and you want to be like the heroes of the story or the main characters, and that's what a role-playing game is, isn't it? And this isn't a role-playing game, it's a story. So, so no, I don't... Uh, yeah, I, I would agree, no, I don't think you'd do it this way in a, in a role-playing game, but it's effective in the story. But then if you accept the premise of what Chris said about this, that... You know, after you've spent all this time building up atmosphere and building up the weirdness, 
than having what is effectively a bunch of people running up and down a hill, spraying a bug sprayer and then shouting a few words. Wouldn't that just feel anticlimactic? Or at least a bit silly? In a role-playing game? Yes. No, I don't think so. Phrased like that, yeah, I think it could sound a bit silly. But to be honest, most things we do in role-playing games, if you just sort of reduce them to a few sentences and told a third party, probably sound a bit silly. Would it not? Think of some of the things we got up to in Spirit of the Century. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that was a very different kind of tone than what Lovecraft was trying to create here. Mm. I mean, if we were doing the Dunwich Horror as a Call of Cthulhu scenario... We'd want a memorable ending. And the colour, the background, the flashing of lightning and the whippoorwills dying and the dogs howling and so on, I mean, that's incredibly atmospheric. But in terms of what the characters actually do, they don't actually do that much. But if you were playing those characters, you know, I think to make the most of this in a role-playing game, there would be stuff going on there that we're not seeing. So there would be tension as... You know, the mechanics of the game are used to try and defeat the monster. Maybe there's there are dice being rolled and there are things being staked. They're making skill rolls. They're doing things to actually defeat this monster. From a distance, all we're seeing is they blow the dust on it. Waitley's up there waving his arms and shouting something and then the lightning strikes the monster. From a remove, that's what we see. But we're not in the thick of it, so we don't really experience that firsthand, if you like. So I can imagine playing one of those characters, that could be a pretty exciting scene. I don't see why not. Obviously, the other part of the climax there is the confirmation of what we may have suspected, and certainly when we were discussing things we were quite open about, that this invisible creature is Wilbur's brother. So it is effectively a demigod. It is born of a human, but fathered by God. If we were to do something similar... In our Call of Cthulhu scenarios, if we were to try to present a mythos demigod, how would we go about doing it? What would that imply to us? I quite like using the fact that it has, a bit like with Wilbur, that it has a human face, but it has certain elements of it that it keeps hidden, or certain things that it can do that no one else can do. The one example that pops to mind immediately for me is something like Typhoid Mary could be a child of Aboth, Mm. for example. Say, carrying that filth and disease wherever it goes but otherwise yourself looking like this normal, healthy little girl where there's no problems at all, but just everyone around her dies wherever she goes. <laughs> like, considering how repulsed Aboth was by humans in the Seven Gearses, it seems like the fathering of that child would be just as unpleasant for him as it would be for the mother. Oh, yeah. What were your ideas, Scott, how you'd use it? The idea that occurred to me, a different approach than the Dunwich Horror. In the Dunwich Horror, Wilbur Waitley knows exactly what he is. He knows Mm. that he's not of human parentage, and physically he's very obviously not entirely human. But doesn't necessarily have to be the case that, you know, someone who was born to a human mother and, and a mythos deity father would know what they were. It could actually be quite a poignant thing or a disturbing thing if... Their nature began manifesting as they aged, if it came out with puberty, for example. If they grew up thinking that they were human, and, well, all their, the other kids around them are going through their changes at puberty, that's nothing compared to the changes to what they, the demigod is going through. Or even that 
it presents almost as a kind of lycanthropy or multiple personality disorder that they live through their human life and are unaware of this other part of them inside them that manifests when they're asleep or in a fugue state or something like that. Maybe there are physical changes or maybe they just manifest strange abilities or reality changes around them. But they are completely oblivious to their true nature. I mean, if that were the case and you were to discover that someone had this other aspect to them that came out, it is like the classic werewolf story in a a lot of ways in that it becomes, you know, I I, I potentially like this person, you know, I feel sympathy for them, but, you know, what am I going to do about this? Am I going to kill them? Am I going to put them down? Am I going to, you know, find some way of banishing them from this world? What does that mean for their human half? I'd probably approach it with the scenario being the efforts to actually make the demigod almost using the uh, very, very opening of the Dunwich Horror being that's the scenario. Say it is the efforts that the cult go to to lay the path down to make this child come into the world. And I can't help but thinking it when you're saying about how painful it must have been for Apoth, how painful it would be for the mother if they're giving birth to a child of Cthulhu. <laughs> God. Uh, a burning sensation. <laughs> uh, yeah, the yeast infection from hell. <laughs> yeah. There's an interesting structure to this scenario as well, in or story, I should, I should refer to it as, in that we kind of get halfway through and what seems like the main baddie is killed, albeit by a dog. And then the second half of the story picks up. So as a scenario, particularly if it were just a one-shot, have the players think, we've defeated it, we've won, it's all over. Oh, but there's quite a lot of time left to go. you know. And then they learn they haven't defeated it. I think that's quite a good... Uh, mm. structure i like yeah. giving them the feeling they've achieved something you watch simpsons and in the first two minutes they've told a story and they wrap that little bit up and then the rest of the show maybe a totally different story sometimes that's quite a good structure i think for a scenario is that you can have something obviously not something totally separate at the start but something that they the players feel like they've achieved something and then it kind of opens out into a longer scenario well, I think also it makes it easier to build unease because it's that feeling of, what are we missing? We thought we knew what was going on, but we know we took care of the problem, but the bad things are still happening. Mm. What have we missed? That sense of uncertainty is the root of fear. I mean, we touched upon this a little bit a few moments ago, but one particular aspect I wanted to draw out is something I've seen in a number of Call of Cthulhu scenarios. I mean, it's not as prevalent as, as you know, I might assume it is, but it, it does come up, which is this idea of the solution to the scenario is to perform a counter-ritual of some kind. So, you know, Armitage has gone off, he's done his research, he's, you know, found the powder of Ibn Ghazi, he's found the right formula to say to drive uh, Wilbur's brother back to wherever his father came from, How do you make that interesting in a scenario? I remember playing a convention game ages ago. It was an unknown armies game, not Call of Cthulhu. But it was, here's this bad situation, someone has done something magical. You know, if you do a bit of research, here's the counter-ritual. The entire scenario is, right, okay, you gather the ingredients for the counter-ritual, go off, do the counter-ritual, and, you know, everything goes back to normal. And I, I don't know, it just felt like paint by numbers. I was being told exactly what to do. Every now and then I got to roll dice to see whether I did it. And at the end, you know, we found out whether it worked or not. I'd set up more that you've got there's certain ambiguities or choice in there. That maybe it's not just the one option you have, but multiple options. One of them might be right. 
or it might be the bits of them are right when you put them together in the right order. But then it's very much laying subtle hints and leaving that deduction to the, the investigators to come up with. Being a simple cut and dry as you say, do X, do Y equals Z. That's boring. Yeah, I think you've got to make it an interesting mechanic that resolves that end game so like matt said if you've got various bits you can put together in different orders perhaps that maximizes or reduces your chances of success and having some interesting way of resolving that i mean it's like this feels a bit like a combat scene really just you're not hitting them with swords or shooting them you're using magic and it just needs an interesting system because it feels like that's very much a game mechanic part of the the story really because if you're just storytelling it well i do this and i do that and the thing dies well we don't tend to do that it's a role-playing game so i think you, to make that engaging i think you'd have to emphasize the game part of the role-playing that's what i'd look to do i think and um, personally i think another part that would make a difference for how engaging i personally find it would be whether you know the idea of this counter ritual counter spell were something that the players had come up with or something that was given to them by the GM or by the scenario. It's, you know, here's the problem. Oh, this is the solution that we've come up with. You know, let's concoct a ritual. You know, let's make a few rolls. You know, try to find out what the right way of approaching this, what the right ingredients we need are, where we need to go off and find things. I think, you know, that's a very proactive, interesting thing for the players to do. If the GM is basically just giving them a to-do list, then that's a whole different story. And now we take a look at the adaptations and derived works of the Dunwich Horror. Well, going back into uh, Paul's favourite era here, the Dunwich Horror from the 1970s, in fact 1970 exactly, is an AIP classic produced by Roger Corman, who produced such great Poe adaptations like Mask of the Red Death, Pit in the Pendulum, Fall of the House of Usher. The classic Poe adaptation, The Conqueror Worm. Bullshit. (laughs) <laughs> yes, had or, nothing or, to do with the or, or the or the haunted castle. I, I, there's a reason why I put those three up first. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, this one stars, uh, admittedly, not in as garish, bright, crazy, futuristic clothing as he used in um, as Al in Quantum Leap, is a very youthful Dean Stockwell as Wilbur Waitley. There's also Ed Begley as Henry Armitage, and Sandra Dee as no one that appears in the short story at all, a character by the name of Nancy Wagner. Uh, was directed by Daniel Haller and adapted by Curtis Hansen, who would later go on to direct L.A. Confidential. So, Dean Stockwell. A very beautiful Dean Stockwell. But, but it's Wilbur Waitley. So, Wilbur Waitley is this eight or nine foot tall goat-faced behemoth. Not exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, not, no, entirely. <laughs> so, 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 tell us about this Wilbur. He's just kind of a bit shy, wet fish, creepy date rapist really that's about as close as it comes <laughs> he does the alistair crowley hands thing okay oh yeah yeah uh, paul has very kindly for everyone listening made the <laughs> gesture so yeah. so we hope you heard that <laughs> yeah yeah scott will include a picture in the show notes there you go scott. <laughs> thank you paul well it's a it's a classic enough said right <laughs> I, I, I rather like it you did yeah. i watched it again last night yeah, it wasn't as good as I remember. Ah, <laughs> yeah, the love interest is, uh, is 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 interesting and pointless. Well, you know, 
It was a random excuse for dream sequences and some nookie. That was it. Yeah. Mm. So so we don't end up with the grandson of Yogg-Sothoth. Well, you do. By the end of it, that's in fact the very last shot of the film. He's oh. panning in on her stomach. And what's there? A baby. Yes. Ah. Indeed. But only a quarter elder god this time. Yeah. Now, you can either watch The Dunwich Horror, starring Dean Stockwell, or you can watch a totally different film called The Dunwich Horror, starring, wait a minute, Dean Stockwell? Except a much older version, the not-so-youthful Dean Stockwell this time. Yeah, made by Sci-Fi in 2009, which, for your entertainment, I did. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, yeah, I I watched it too. Oh, God, no, I've heard enough about this to know that I never want to do this to myself. Now, just the opening credits, we learn that it's a Ken Baddish production. Uh, Definitely not a Ken Goodish one. No. (laughs) Baddish by name, Baddish by nature. (laughs) If this film is anything to go by. We open up with Lavinia giving birth, and it's a terrible scene. She's laid on this bed giving birth to Wilbur, obviously. And the, the most rudimentary of special effects, it's clearly a woman laid there with a pillow shoved up her dress i mean the, you can see the shape of the cushion going all all the way up to her chest you know it's, this is nothing like a pregnancy and i said to my wife it's hard to believe this film was made this century and then a few minutes later she commented that it's like it's made in the 70s or 80s and i'm like no no i said it was made this century and she's like oh i thought you meant it was hard to believe it was made in the last hundred years <laughs> We've soon move on to uh, Dean Stockwell turning up as Doctor Armitage, the Exorcist, (laughs) casting out a demon from a teenage girl on her bed, obviously, (laughs) and his his female assistant. uh, Of course, where the exorcism's going on, she like hacks into the floorboards and pulls out a Sumerian ritual pyramid. (laughs) In brackets, Hellraiser puzzle box, glowing. Glowing, yes. And uh, Dean Stockwell soon sorts this out and makes some reference to Ibstil, the mythos deity. Okay. Yep. Lots of weird references in this film. Lumbly does it again. (laughs) (laughs) Is is this better or worse than a Lumbly story? Oh, pretty worse. It's like a televisation of one's got. I I, I roll to disbelieve. (laughs) There's more to come. There's more to come. We, We cut to Professor... Is it Professor Rice or Dr. Rice? Who cares? Teaching his class, and this is a bit like Peabody's last lecture, you know, the old, uh, what was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, less, yeah. with less fun, yeah. And he's, he's got all these, like, Yogg-Sothoth and stuff written on the blackboard, oh, and gosh. then he's asking his class about them, and there's this know-it-all kid in a Dark Side of the Moon t-shirt who puts his hand up and, like, knows all about the, the mythos deities. But then uh, Professor Rice and Professor Morgan's female assistant, they had a bit of a love interest thing again going on. You can't have a film without about Lovecraft without the love interest. And they go uh, off. Is, isn't the relationship between Lavinia and Yogg-Sothoth enough of a love well, interest for this film? <laughs> you, you missed one bit there that oh, I, thought I? Was quite, uh, I thought was quite amusing. When Armitage and Rice meet, uh, of course, as all great uh, mythos academics like to quote, they start off with, that is not dead, which can eternal lie, and reply with, <laughs> oh, yeah, hello, it's stranger, you'll see a death may die. Hello, Dr. <laughs> Professor Armitage, yes. how are you doing? <laughs> I've forgotten that. <laughs> but they go off in search of none other than Olaus Wormius. But well, that would mean he'd be like 900 years old. <laughs> Why, yes, Professor. 
They kind of go on this kind of, I'm going upriver, how far upriver? Well, I'm going a long way upriver, kind of apocalypse now kind of journey upriver <laughs> in this boat, in the, in the bayou or whatever down in Louisiana. And uh, they end up in these tents and uh, there are these women kind of dancing, they're kind of occultists. <laughs> then my wife says, oh, it's Mike. <laughs> this figure sort of <laughs> drifts across the room, levitates and sort of sits down. And indeed, it could be played by Mike, a Mike Mason impersonator, <laughs> just with bigger eyebrows. And this is indeed Olaus Wormius. Is there a big market for Mike Mason impersonators? Oh, yes. I, I was just wondering if Mike needs extra money, he can make money as a Mike Mason impersonator. <laughs> it worked for, um, who was it, with the duck? Orville. <clears throat> oh, yes. Yeah. God. Apparently. I like the directions that uh, our dear friend Olus gives to the investigators going on their vision quest. Oh, yes. You need to go to the witch house, but I'm not going to call it the witch house. I'm just going to give you the address. Yes. The house that is not a house. And then they come back and all the women are now naked for no good reason. Okay. Well, other than... But this is made by the Sci-Fi Channel. So are are they all covered with gauze or just not showing... No, no, they're just topless. So they are actually showing nipples and stuff. Yes, breasts, Scott, breasts. Well, well, no, I mean, this is a a very important distinction in American television. Right. In that you can see breasts as long as you keep the nipples covered. Right. And because this is made for American television, I mean, albeit a cable channel, I thought sci-fi was notorious about showing nipples. I zoned out from the specifics by that point. I can't remember. And we get Jeffrey Combs as Wilbur Waitley with a very remarkable slack jaw and yeah. almost unintelligible accent. It's <laughs> really weird. He's not speaking like this all the way through the film. He okay. is. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. I think I prefer it to the 1970s one, maybe. I don't know. It was a close call. It's a close call. Okay. They, they do appear a bit more inbred and yokelish than at least the 70s version is, especially considering that they're supposed to live in this converted barn that everything's been kind of knocked down and rebuilt they're living in a fucking palace in the 1970s film but then you have this one and it's a bit more closer to the story and pretty much i think any interaction that takes place with them that could bear resemblance to the story happens in what five minutes there are quotes that come directly from the story and occasionally you're kind of watching it thinking this is nothing oh wait hold on no that is from the story so it does kind of hang together you could if you watched it you would know it was the Dunwich horror but maybe not immediately with any other shade of oh that sounds like a good call of Cthulhu reference we'll throw that in oh yeah we'll have a bit of dreams in the witch house let's throw that in there as well yeah and some really random shit that they threw together and really badly done I'm oh, sorry, but it is pretty bad. But the sky is purple at the end. And kills Dean Stockwell. Yeah. So he dies in both films. <laughs> they killed off Armitage! And possibly every bit as faithful as that, though I don't think any of us have actually seen this, there is Beyond the Dunwich Horror. I've seen the trailer. Oh, oh my God, yeah, it looks yeah. really authentic, the trailer, doesn't it, Matt? <laughs> it, to the point it uses the same font that was originally used in the 1970s Dunwich Horror title card. Oh, okay. So there is a resemblance in typography, if nothing else. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks so bad it's good. That's the only yeah. thing I can say. Well, it actually got a surprisingly good IMDb rating. I don't know if that's because so few people have seen it that only people involved with the production have actually voted for it. But the rating is, at least currently, above five, which is pretty good for a horror film. I would quite like to see it, but the trailer... Yeah, we'll link to the trailer, I think. Yeah, and, and the synopsis on IMDb seems to bear no resemblance whatsoever to the Dunwich Horror. And there is a mention of a character called Upton Armitage. 
So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe he was influenced by, the, by those minced pie dreams of the art club and <laughs> followed his uh, favourite painter. If, if any of our listeners have seen Beyond the Dunwich Horror, please do get in contact and let us know just what to expect should we expose ourselves to it. I'm going to go with a D10. <laughs> there are a number of short film adaptations as well, including a Japanese one, uh, which I did watch on YouTube. And there are subtitles. It's part of a trilogy of films. Uh, you get the picture in the house, then the Dunwich Horror, which starts at 11 and a half minutes in. And then that's 20 minutes. And then you get the festival. And it's a claymation style production there's not a lot of animation of the figures but there are you know there are lots of models and nice lighting and good use of music and i started watching it and thought well actually you know these guys have obviously put a lot of time into this i'm going to give it 20 minutes and actually see what this is and it was a little slow in parts but it's a pretty good adaptation it's a mm. it's a nice production it's well worth watching it's set in japan is it transposed no, there uh, no i would say it's set in dunwich there's you know okay. it's, it's pretty authentic um and it follows the story pretty closely i think hmm. yeah well worth a watch we mentioned last episode i think the hp lovecraft historical society in their dark adventure radio theater series they've done adaptations of a lot of lovecraft's major tales and obviously one of those is the dunwich horror yeah, I thoroughly recommend it. Yeah, great piece. And if you get the CD, you get lots of props and handouts in the cover of the CD that go with the audio. There's also, going back to 2011, a comic adaptation written by Joe R. Lansdale. Known also for Bubba Hotep, of course. Yes. Well, and the Happened Leonard series and all sorts of really nasty horror stories and some weird westerns and very versatile writer, but fantastic. And also Keith Herber did a Call of Cthulhu supplement called Return to Dunwich in 1991. The second edition released called H.P. Lovecraft's Dunwich Return to the Forgotten Village, 2002. I haven't read all the book, but I remember going through this when I was putting together the, the spell list for the, uh, the Grand Grimoire of Cthulhu Mythos Magic. And some stuff that I was really surprised and wasn't expecting to see in there. There's a lot of some, some of my favourite Clark Ashton Smith material makes an appearance in there. So, yeah, there's, uh, there's a few surprises in store. Yeah, and speaking of, of RPG material, Theatre of the Mind's Eye did a supplement or scenario book called Death in Dunwich. And also, board game-wise, of course, we've got the Arkham Horror board game with a Dunwich Horror expansion for it. But also, if you want the real Waitley feel, <laughs> you need to get The Hills Rise Wild, uh, published, I think, by Pagan Publishing, ooh, 15, 20 years yeah. ago. Oh, at least, and yeah. There's the Waitley clan in that, and that's kind of almost like a skirmish board game of a tape measure and, and everything, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great fun game, and you play, there are various factions that you can play. I've got a copy, I've not played it for years, but yeah. I remember having great fun well, with I, it. I remember I've, playing it with you, gosh, at least 10 years ago. More yeah, than that. likewise, I think the only time I've played it was when you got it out, and I always remember that token, I got me the Necronomicon! <laughs> yes, and every, it's obligatory to say it in that manner, <laughs> definitely. Uh, yeah, the, the Dunwich Horror expansion for Arkham Horror is definitely one of the better expansions for that game. That's the version done through Fantasy Flight rather than the original Chaosium one. Yeah, that, that and the Innsmouth one, I think, are probably the best two. And I've not read it, so I've got no idea whether it relates at all to the Dunwich Horror. But there is a rather cheekily named short story collection by David Hambling, set in South London, called The, the Dulwich Horror and Others. 
which I just thought was worth mentioning simply for the name. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Once again, we have people to thank, people who have given us money via Patreon. The money that you pledge to us uh, pays for all our running costs and it keeps the podcast going. So thank you to each and every person who has donated, who has sponsored us via Patreon. And we have, once again, a lot of people to thank. The release of issue four of uh, The Blasphemous Tome prompted a lot of new backers to join us. So we would like to thank them and we shall now. Starting at the $1 level, a big thanks going out to Anubis Sama. Thank you very much. I don't know whether to say Anubis or Anubis Sama. I think it's probably safe to use the full name. So thank you very much, Anubis Sama. And indeed, thank you, Anubis Sama. Also, our thanks go out to Peter Larson. So thank you very much, Peter. Yep, thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Ah, and a familiar looking name there. Thank you to Gavin Peebles. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you very much, Gavin. And thank you to Michael Mihajic. Indeed, thank you very much, Michael. Yes, thank you very much, Michael, and as we always say, we hope we're pronouncing your name right. And next, our thanks go out to Blake Roberts, so thank you very much, Blake. Yes, thank you, Blake. Thank you, Blake. And our thanks go out to Matthew Tanzik. Thank you, Matthew. Indeed, thank you, Matthew. And thank you to Steve Rubin. Indeed, thank you very much, Steve. Thank you very much, Steve. Next, our thanks go out to David Sansom, so thank you very much, David. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. And our thanks go out to Scott Mortimer. Thank you, Scott. Indeed, thank you, Scott. And thank you also to Hector Gummies. Hey, thank you very much, Hector. Yes, thank you, Hector. And also then thanks to Leighton Williams. So thank you very much, Leighton. Thank you, Leighton. Thank you, Leighton. And now we move up to the $3 tier, wherein we not only thank our backers, but we, we drink a toast to them. And our first thanks here go out to Michael Dinos. Thank you and cheers, Michael. Cheers, Michael. Indeed, cheers, Michael. And thanks and cheers to Ross Leonard. Indeed, cheers, Ross. Cheers, Ross. Next up, thank you and cheers to Kim Malacher. So hopefully I've got your name right there. Thank you very much, and cheers, Kim. Yes, cheers, Kim. Cheers, Kim. And our thanks and our cheers go out to Stephen Eyre. Cheers, Stephen. Cheers, Stephen. And thanks and cheers to Alastair McLennan. Indeed, cheers, Alastair. Thank you and cheers, Alastair. Next, our thanks and cheers go out to Byron. No last name, just Byron. So, cheers, Byron. Well, that might be a last name. So, yes, whichever name it is, thank you and cheers, Byron. Cheers, Byron. Ah, another familiar name. Thank you and cheers to David Larkins. Cheers, David. Hey, cheers, David. And thanks and cheers to Brian Weeks. Indeed, cheers, Brian. Cheers, Brian. And last on the list here for today, our thanks and cheers go out to Leon Zaitsev. So, again, hopefully I've got the name right there. Cheers. Yes. Cheers, Leon. Cheers, Leon. Is that it? Yep, we're going out. Done. We always do this. Yeah. It's not it. It's no, not it's, it at all. it's not. As, as much as everyone at home may be wishing that was it, it's not. Because we have two new $5 backers to thank. Well, actually, we have a lot more than two new $5 backers to thank. But out of a sense of mercy for the people listening, we shall only sing to two of them in, in this episode. And recently we opened up some higher tiers, and one of them has been taken up by Hank Marshall, who has moved up from the $5 level to the hallowed $20 level, and has taken the title The King in Yellow. Hail to the king, baby. Indeed. (laughs) Uh, We are in awe of this, Hank. Thank you very much. This is staggering. Consider us staggered. Praise the king. (laughs) 
But let's not let this distract us from the songs. As much as we might pray for distraction, we must sing now. And our first song today will be going out to James Masonette. Thank you very much, James. Sorry about what we're about to inflict on you, James. Yes, thank you, James. And, uh, well, God bless you. <laughs> or spare you. Or protect you. Or, yeah, yeah, just generally look after you in some way. Might make him deaf. I might help. We call upon these words of power. Thank you, James Masonette. Thank you. Thank you, James Masonette. And our next victim, I mean, uh, recipient of song, is Daniel Butler. So, uh, brace yourself, Daniel. We hope you like this, Daniel, and thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Enjoy. What is this I spy through my telescope? It's, it, it, it's, it's beyond words. It's, it's, it's indescribable. It's, it's Daniel Butler. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. <laughs> thank, thank you, Daniel. On social media, we made a throwaway comment in the first of our Dunwich Horror episodes about there was a young man from Dunwich and thought that would be a good line with which to start a limerick. It was just a joking comment that we made in passing. Our listeners, on the other hand, had other ideas and we have been flooded with limericks since then. We've got a whole bunch of them here. We'll pick out our favourite three. A special mention, though, goes out to Cthulhu Bob on BlasphemousTomes.com who went for not just a mere limerick but combined a bunch of, of linked limericks together into what became an epic poem. An epic saga. Yes. Yes. It is a thing of wonder that is unfortunately too long to read out here. But if I am canny about it, I shall link to it from the show notes. Now, starting with Henry Haster on Discord. The librarian of good old MU, Henry Armitage looked like a fool. But don't be deceived by his jacket of tweed. He's defeated a monster or two. A fellow from unknown Kadath. Suffered the great old one's wrath. The gate and the key devoured him with glee, cos old Yogi's a real psychopath. And that was from the Daily Dwarf on G+. The Dunwitch's lips were a rattle when old wizard Waitley took saddle. But he paid them in gold, so their cattle they sold, saying, really, it's not worth the battle. And that one's from Forrester Gary on G+. People have been talking about us again out there on the big wide interwebs. Over on social media, in fact. Uh, we've had a new iTunes review from SJG Wiz. The best role-playing podcast around. I started listening to the good friends around the time I actually started role-playing myself, and they have been my favourite podcast ever since. They're a great resource for Call of Cthulhu scenario seeds. They give great recommendations for movies and books. I discovered Nathan Ballingrud through them. And they're all around fun to listen to. 
They also cover a wide range of topics in the area of role-playing and often give very useful advice for players and DMs alike, a lot of which I've adopted myself. I'd recommend the podcast, and have, to anyone who has an interest in role-playing, anything horror-related, really, and especially anyone who likes to listen to good friends having a good chat about the things they love. Also, you should support them on Patreon, because they bloody well deserve it! Hey, meant to that! <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, SJG. I mean, that, that is a lovely review. Thank you very much. And if anybody else wants to write us a review, we very much appreciate it. We've had a lot of feedback about our recent episode on Call of Cthulhu for Beginners, but unusually, almost none of it was about the content of the episode. Most of the people who got in contact did so to tell us about how moving they found the backer thanks that we put in there, because if you remember, this was where we did the song on behalf of Wilson MacGyver for his late wife Priscilla Meredith. I don't think I've ever had so many people get in contact for, on social media in various forms, most of whom were, were talking about just their profound emotional reaction to Wilson and, and Priscilla Meredith's story. And I can reflect that we heard a lot of similar comments when Matt and I were at Dragon Meat Games Convention in London just after the episode dropped. And so many people came up to us and commented on that segment and how moving they'd found it. Norman Beresford over on G Plus said, Just driven home with tears rolling down my cheeks. That was such a beautiful, tragic, bittersweet story. Hearing you guys obviously struggling to keep it together while reading it really struck home with me. In fact, now in tears again, simply telling my wife the story. Uh, to paraphrase the song, thank you. And from Linus Larson on G Plus, Truly a very heartfelt song this fortnight. I was prepared, having read some of the comments above, but it still hit me right in the gut. And from Wilson, Wilson MacGyver on G+. I played the episode at the cemetery today. You guys are wonderful. Ginny's purr in the song was perfect. I laughed and I cried. I want the three of you to know, your work made a difference in our lives and we'll both be forever grateful. Playing the good friends of Jackson Elias whenever I visit the cemetery has been a soothing yet interesting experience. Some of the podcast discussions, when taken out of context, have people look at me funny. Recently, right in the middle of episode 140 on Nalathotep, when you guys were discussing how other religions were being recast as aspects of Nalathotep, a group of very religious visitors walked up. With all the speed I can summon, I pause the podcast and turn off the speaker. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you again, Wilson. Uh, I mean, thank you for getting in touch and... and uh, following up with us like that, and we're glad you enjoyed it. Um, we're glad that the podcast has uh, has meant so much to you, and we're glad that in a bit, you know, in the midst of all this, it managed to give you a laugh as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep on trying to do you proud, buddy. <laughs> and to wrap up, what are our final, final, final thoughts? about the Dunwich Horror. So, I guess, bottom line, what do we think of the Dunwich Horror? It's actually one of my least favourite Lovecraft stories. <laughs> after, we spent, after we spent four episodes talking about it, I guess, you know, A Curate's Egg is, is excellent in parts. There are bits of it I really like. I like the setting. I like certain aspects of it. I like the cosmology. I think as a story, 
Particularly the resolution is one of the least interesting things that Lovecraft wrote. It's been really good over the last few episodes, mining it for details and going to the bits we like. But the overall thing, it's not just that I don't think it's a particularly interesting resolution, but I think it's the fact that it set the template for a lot of the tropes in Lovecraftian fiction and in Call of Cthulhu scenarios that I personally don't like. Can't be all that bad. It gave us those two great film adaptations. We had a great <laughs> laugh over one of them. It just seems to have pretty much everything packed into this story, as we've discussed. It's got, you know, monsters, occult homes, professors. It's got Arkham. It's got Dunwich. It's got half-man, half-god things. But it's missing one thing that would have made it the perfect investigator story. Love interest? No. Dynamite? Yep. None of them took dynamite up that hill. They had an elephant gun, they had a bug spray, and they had magic. They did not have dynamite. The bug spray is, the bug spray is when you go, where you're going wrong, Matt. That's the one thing you haven't had in your games. Always <sighs> with the dynamite, never with the bug sprayer. But let's go back to what we think of the story. Let's not get distracted with you know paraphernalia. What do you think of it, Matt, overall? I think it's all right up until the end. I think the end is a massive cop-out that it's shows everything from afar up until that point i love the fact it has a detailed explanation as to what happens with wilbur as he's growing up it really sets the scene and then shows you how an investigator group will come in on the scene and that how great plans can be thwarted by the humblest of animals the old ye faithful dog but then now i'm going to see it all through a telescope can i get some vague details and that's it i think the end is what lets it down but everything else is great work up until that point yeah, I don't really have a problem with the end and that device of having it seen at a distance. I think it plays off well, and I, I like that final sentence about it having, you know, looking more like the father. Yeah, I, li- I like the overall structure of the story, and the the end is as good a ending as any, I think. Yeah, um, yeah I, I guess one of the things that disappoints me is it it pretty much reduces all this this horror and mystery and otherworldly influence in the end, down to a monster to be fought. I mean, not fought, you know, as we found out, the big game rifle wasn't going to be effective, but it was fought through research and magic and intelligence. But, yeah, it was still, there's a monster, let's go deal with it. And that felt simplistic compared to a lot of Lovecraft stuff. It robbed the mythos of some of that sense of being overwhelming and too alien to comprehend and just too powerful to fight and in the end we get an old man his two friends run up a hill say a few words and it all goes away yeah so i mean they defeat it this time but it's not like they go up and just shoot it as you said if it were just a physical battle and they killed it with some guns then uh, yeah i would agree that'd be a bit lame but you know they have a magical battle atop a hill I mean, that's pretty cool. He's he's kind of done that in The Lurking Fear, though, hasn't he? Yes. But not in this one. No. Yeah, I think that that aspect of the Dunwich horror went off and, like I say, influenced a lot of the weaker aspects of Call of Cthulhu and and the mythos, and mythos fiction. I read a a thing that S.T. Joshi wrote, which I think Dan Harms quoted in a Usenet post, and that's where I found it. Which was, what the Dunwich Horror did, in effect, was to make the rest of the Cthulhu mythos, i.e. the contributions by other and less skillful hands, possible. Its luridness, melodrama, and naive moral dichotomy were picked up by later writers. It was, not surprisingly, one of Durlis's favourite tales, rather than the subtler work embodied in The Call of Cthulhu, The Colour Out of Space, and others. 
And I agree entirely with that. That's, as I said, looking at the tale as a whole, looking at it for gaming inspiration, looking at the elements that made it up, looking at the mythology, the bits that went into the mythos, the characters. I think all these things are excellent. The use of landscapes, the use of folklore, the whippoorwills, those are creepy as hell. But somehow the combination of them turns into you know a big bug hunt. But part of your criticism seems to be that it's inspired less talented people to make second-rate works. But, I mean, so what? That's not this story. A work can't be held accountable for the things that it inspires by lesser hands afterwards, really. No, but it's the, the, the somewhat facile approach. Compared to, say, something like The Colour Out of Space, which you know, is a much more, I think, complex portrayal of, of an alien intrusion into our world... I mean, this is, you know, a, a tale of good versus evil. This is a tale of, you know, the good guys going out and, and you know, like Van Helsing hunting Dracula or something like that. It, it almost feels like a reskinned gothic tale. I think that's one of the things I like about Lovecraft is he all his tales weren't the same in tone. And this is a more, you know, I'd have to say a more fun read than The Colour Out of Space and The Call of Cthulhu, which I enjoy reading but in a different way, this is a very different kind of story. This is almost, in parts, almost a bit of a romp with the, the crazy yokel dialect and, and some of the things that happen. It's not as out there as Herbert West, which I also love, but, you know, it's, it's not of the same tone as those other stories. And I, I think clearly Lovecraft didn't intend it to be. No, no, um, not It's not the same as those, but I would say it's up there with them. But it's a different kind of, you know, it's like I like some comedy films and I like some serious films. They're very different beasts, but, you know, they are what they are. Certainly when I was playing a lot of Call of Cthulhu in the 80s, it felt like this sort of model of story was predominant in the style of play that people adopted. And for a while, it's, it's what actually put me off playing Call of Cthulhu. Because this whole idea, I mean, I've, I've talked about it in countless other episodes of, you know, let's research what the monster is and then tool up and go out and kill it in a big climactic scene, is okay perhaps once or twice. But I just saw it too damn many times. And seeing the roots of it here, I don't know, I, I, I find it profoundly disappointing. I wouldn't say I had that much of a reaction to it saying disappointing, but it is very different in my eye to a lot of his other tales. It doesn't have that same that same nihilistic bent, that yeah, that kind of dark, hopeless and if if anything, it gives a glimmer of hope, which is the annoying thing. But you get that darkness in it when you've got Wilbur talking about bringing the old ones to Earth and like wiping out all of humanity and so on, perhaps more explicitly than in many of his other tales. Yeah. Um, so you kind of get that flavour of that, but it doesn't dominate as much, I would agree. Yeah. Shame he didn't succeed. That would have been an interesting story. <laughs> what, if it just wiped out all of humanity? Yeah. Well, fair enough. It, yeah. no, it, but in all seriousness, that would be an interesting setting to play and play and set stories or games in. What, after he's wiped out all life on Earth? Well, during the process of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, if it's not an instantaneous thing. Well, yeah. I don't see how it could be. I think there's a line from the Arthur in the Fungi from Yogoth, where the idiot chaos blew Earth's dust away. That I can see happening if it was a god doing it. But a demigod might take a little bit more time. Yeah, or alternatively, this whole idea of Earth being taken off somewhere else, that wherever it's taken to is perhaps inhospitable to human life, but it isn't necessarily an immediate annihilation. So, you know, it is this feeling of living on a, a rapidly dying planet. Yeah, I mean, that, that could be a good setting. That, uh, that would cheer me up more than the Dunwich Horror. You've read Zathik, haven't you? Yes. <laughs>
Well, that draws us to a close. We hope you've enjoyed our exploration of the Dunwich Horror. So, until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Bigger than a barn, all made of squirming ropes. Whole thing all so shaped like a hen egg or bigger than anything, with dozens of legs like hogs' heads that had to shout when they, when they step. Nothing solid about it, an old jelly and made all seven wriggling ropes pushed closer together. Great bulging eyes all over, 10, 20 mouths, your trunks are sticking out all on the sides, bigger as stovepipes. And all a tossing an old man and a shutting, all grey with kind of blue or purple things, and gold in heaven, that half fist on top.